Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. The funny thing for me this week is I was praying through uh, our time together this morning. Uh, I, I came and I looked at this set and I thought, oh Lord, I'm preaching on Armageddon. Um, how, how's that going to work? <laughs> you know, how do you deal with Armageddon? Um, but you know, I, it was so interesting to me because uh, in a couple weeks we're going to be having uh, just a, a Christmas service and then on uh, to a New Year's service. So we'll take a little bit of a pause in Revelation and we'll finish it up at the beginning part of uh, next year. You know, the thing that really hit me in the midst of all this, this season, when we talk about um, all the judgment of God, do we realize that all the wrath of God was poured out on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross? That Armageddon didn't have to happen because Jesus Christ was born. Think about that. When people yield their lives to Christ, they give their lives to Christ, and they are reconciled to God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, then immediately, as believers, we're no longer under the wrath of God. We're not under judgment any longer. It's interesting, because when you go back to Pentecost, and you begin to think about what Peter said to all those that were gathered there at Pentecost... You begin to think through one of the things that he said is if, if you would repent, meaning change your mind about the Messiah that you just killed, and if you would turn yourself, in effect, to the Lord and yield to him and submit to him and surrender to him, if you would yield to him as a nation, then immediately the millennium would have been ushered in. None of, none of this would have happened. Think about that. Why is it that Armageddon has to happen? Why is it that judgment happens? Why is it that we look at these things in Revelation and recognize that they're going to happen, that this, this stuff is going to take place? I would suggest it's because of unbelief. It's because of sin. That God knows that this is something he has to deal with. And as a result, he's going to. Interesting. Let me uh, just kind of walk you through this a little bit, because I think that in the midst of Revelation chapter 16, we've got these bold judgments, and we looked at the first five, and they're devastating, right? They're the completion of everything. You've got the seals, you've got the trumpets, and then you get into these bold judgments, and it really is pretty remarkable, um, when you think about the devastation that takes place, and, and again, all of this is because of sin, because of unbelief, because of a lack of willingness to be persuaded that Jesus Christ really is who he is. And in chapter 16, verses 12 and following, we get the sixth and seventh uh, bowls. And I, I want you to really think about this at Christmas time, especially because the fact that Jesus Christ came to this earth and the fact that people still reject him. That's why, ultimately, Armageddon's going to take place. That's why all of this Daniel's 70th week, the seven-year tribulation period of time, the wrath of God, all of this is, is happening. That's why Jesus Christ is going to come back and he's going to rule and reign during the millennium from Jerusalem. Right? We, we see what's going on in Jerusalem today, and I want to tell you, I don't care what you think about President Trump. I respect him for doing what he has done with regard to Israel. That's huge. 
<laughs> Pardon the pun. The sixth bowl, right, the Euphrates River is dried up. In verse 12, it says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. Well, the, the Euphrates River is literally going to be dried up so that the armies of the Antichrist can cross over on dry land on their way to the Valley of Jezreel or where Armageddon is in order to attack Israel, in order to come against Jerusalem. Some people want to say that, well, these are the armies of the east, therefore it's uh, China and other uh, nations from that particular area. Normally when in scripture the east is referred to, it's referring to Mesopotamia, so it's really referring to Babylon as well as to Assyria. And the fact that Babylon is on the banks of the Euphrates River and is the capital, so to speak, of the Antichrist, it is his headquarters from where he is working out of, then I would suggest that this is more of the Mesopotamian kings or the rulers that are now coming across the Euphrates River in order to come against Israel and to come against specifically uh, Jerusalem. Verse 13 says, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Now, one of the things that hit me as I read through this is not only the fact, obviously, that this unholy trinity is the one orchestrating this, but we could tend to think that this is their war. But actually, it says it is the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. See, this is his way of bringing everything together in order to deal with it. It's done. It's finished. It's going to be accomplished. Sin is going to be put down. Unbelief is going to be put down. Jerusalem is going to be protected. The Israel nation is going to be brought back to himself. The Antichrist, right? the dragon, the false prophet, they're going to be dealt with. This is God's war. And it's because of unbelief. It's because of sin. Three spirits are sent from the unholy trinity in order to gather the kings of the whole world for war. So not only do we have the rulers of the east, probably meaning Babylon and probably meaning Assyria, coming across the Euphrates River on dry land in order to get into Israel to come attack Jerusalem, but three demonic spirits are sent out into the rest of the entire world in order to convince, uh, in order to win, in order to gather the kings, the rulers of the entire earth to now gather at Armageddon. Think about that. These kings are most likely those who are under the authority of the Antichrist, and if there are some that were not under his authority or were not directly under his authority, they are certainly being gathered and won because of the signs and the wonders that these demonic spirits give in order to deceive them, in order to come against Jerusalem, the Jewish people in Jerusalem. The kings that are spoken of are most likely those who were under the authority of the Antichrist 
who came to power fully in the middle of the tribulation. They are the rulers of the one world government. And the picture that we have here is the entire world gathering at Armageddon, at this valley. Fruchtenbaum puts it this way, these kings are the seven kings that have been under the authority of the Antichrist since the middle of the tribulation. Verse 14 tells us they are spirits of demons who perform signs to gather together these armies. This is obviously a demonic activity or a demonic gathering orchestrated by Satan himself. But again, it's all under the authority of God. It's all under God's sovereignty that he is now causing, allowing this to take place because there is an end in this. God is going to deal with sin once and for all. He's going to deal with unbelief at this point. He's going to finalize this seven-year period of time, and he's going to win Jerusalem, win the Jewish people back to himself. It is the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Folks, I don't know how to get this across clearly sometimes, but when you think about God, how vast, how awesome, how mighty do you believe God really is? I remember years and years ago when uh, I had just entered into the pastorate, I remember somebody making this statement. They said something to the effect of how big your God is will then naturally become how your service and or the ministry that you have for him becomes. What your view of God is and how big and how almighty and how awesome he truly is will impact you in a way to where you will begin to trust him and serve him regardless of the situation, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the difficulties, no matter what it may be, because you know that God, the Lord God Almighty, is sovereign over it all. Folks, what in our lives do we think is so difficult for God? How often do we get tripped up? Here the entire world is coming against, but it's the, the battle, the war is God's, and he's going to accomplish this. It's not difficult for him. He is the eternal, infinite king of kings. How often do we get so saturated with the things of this world that we forget, we get distracted that the Lord God Almighty is over it all. And it's not difficult for him. The question is, do we believe? Do we walk in faith? Are we willing to worship him in the midst of the circumstances, no matter what they may be? Because we know that God is sovereign. We know that he's in charge. We know that he's in control. So even though this rebellion appears to be insurmountable, I mean, can you imagine? It's God's war. (laughs) It's his war. He's going to put an end to this thing. In verse 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And it's almost like there's this parenthetical moment here where we're again reminded that the reader is again reminded that God is absolutely sovereign, that he's coming again like a thief soon. Wearsby puts it this way, the admonition in Revelation 16, 15 applies to us all. Jesus Christ may return at any time, and it behooves us to keep our lives clean, to watch, and to be faithful. 
It's almost like in the midst of this, there's just this reminder for believers who are reading this, perhaps who aren't going through this, or perhaps who are going through this, because there's Gentile and Jewish believers during these times that perhaps will be able to read this and be excited and encouraged that God has promised certain things, that things are going to take place, that God the Almighty is sovereign and in charge of. But it also, for us, is a reminder, how are we walking today? Because the Lord Jesus Christ could come back at any time. And are we walking yielded to him, surrendered to him, or as Wearsby puts it, keeping our lives clean, watching carefully, being faithful? What an important message for us. Verse 16, they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now, I've been there, and it's really fascinating. Uh, We tend to think of these things, or at least I do, almost in a surreal kind of way. This is an actual place. Uh, It is the Valley of Jezreel. It is in Israel, Megiddo, the city. There's a tell there. They've done a dig. And you can go and you can check it out. And you can actually come up on that tell and it overlooks the whole valley of Jezreel. And it is absolutely awe-inspiring to see it. Because it's this flat plain right in the midst of the Judean hill country. Pharaoh Necho came up here, and this is where Josiah was killed. There's all kinds of battles that have taken place right in this arena over the, over the centuries. This is an area where they're going to gather. We're going to look at Armageddon a little bit more closely in terms of the destruction of Babylon and the whole social political system that is utterly destroyed by the Lord Jesus Christ when he takes out the Antichrist. But in the midst of it, understand this is a gathering place. This is where their campaign headquarters are going to be. It's interesting because there's a quote from Napoleon who calls this valley the most natural battlefield of the whole earth. Think about that. What's fascinating to me when I was looking at this is you can see at least to a degree where Nazareth is. You can look across the valley and you can see where Nazareth is. You have an understanding of even where Bethlehem is in terms of close to Jerusalem. But Nazareth is where Jesus grew up. He was called a Nazarene. And it was fascinating to me to be there to see this, to recognize that this is the staging ground for when the Lord Jesus Christ will come and put an end to this rebellion against himself. It's the very place where he also grew up. Think about that. It was absolutely incredible to me to see that. The Lord Jesus Christ is sovereign. He's the Lord. He's the king. And all these armies are going to gather and they're going to come against him. (laughs) But the Lord is going to have the victory, folks. You can bank on that. Well, the final bowl, the seventh, kind of inflicts these multiple disasters. It's indescribable. Verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying what? It is done. It's interesting. Well, the army hadn't fought yet. The the whole battle hasn't taken place or the series of battles really because it's a campaign. But they say it's done. It's perfect tense, meaning at a particular point in time it's been decreed and there's ongoing results because of that. In other words, it hasn't yet quite happened in historical time frame, but from God's perspective, it's a done deal. 
It's going to happen and it's going to be accomplished. Heaven will rule. Christ is going to rule. And in the midst of that, who knows whether this bowl that has been tossed into the air impacts the satanic powers because he's the prince of the power of the air. We don't know that for sure. But what we do know is that now suddenly in this seventh and final bowl, the end of the end, if you will, after the seals and the trumpets and now the bowls, we see this destructive devastation taking place throughout the earth. Verse 18, there were flashes of lightning sounds and peals of thunder. Again, we've seen that over and over again as language that is being expressed of coming from the very throne of God, indicating the judgment that is now about to take place. There was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. It's hard to even imagine that. What would that actually look like? Verse 19, the great city was split into three parts, speaking of Babylon, and the cities of the nations fell. In other words, this earthquake is so devastating, not only does it change probably Jerusalem, excuse me, in verse 19, the great city is probably referring to Jerusalem, but also all the cities of the nations fall. And then he goes on, he says, Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. So the very staging ground for those who were coming into Israel and camping out in Armageddon, now Babylon is given the fierce cup, the wine of God's wrath. The Lord is making it very clear who's in control, who's in charge. Verse 20, every island fled away and the mountains were not found. This this devastation that's taking place literally changes the landscape as we understand it and know it. In verse 21, huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. See, rather than repenting, rather than changing their minds and recognizing that they are in need of the Lamb and need of God, they continue to blaspheme the Lord. Rather than acknowledging sin and the need of salvation in Christ Jesus, they blaspheme. Their hearts are hardened. They begin to blame God for this disaster when the truth of the matter is it's their own fault because of the choices that they've made. Well, when we look at this and we begin to think through this and it's hard to even imagine, think about Jesus Christ coming to this earth. (laughs) How God the Father sent his son. How God the Father allowed his son to come to this earth How Jesus chose to lay aside, not his deity, but his glory, the true identity of who he is. And in Philippians 2, where it makes it very clear that he humbled himself, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? So that when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity of being saved because of what he's done for us. What did God do about sin? What did God do about separation? Well, he he sent his son. He came and he went to the cross. 
Why is God judge? Why does God pour out his wrath? It's because of unbelief. It's because of the refusal to agree that there's a need for the salvation provided through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me give you three things this Christmas as we kind of go through this season and we think about what God has done and why he came to this earth. The first thing is he came to rescue. He came to rescue. John 3, 16, 17, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, and I want you to think of this because there's several phrases in here that are in the subjunctive. Now, I don't want to get too wonky on you, okay? But subjunctive is different. Indicative is it's a reality. It's a happened. It's a fact. It's a, it's a dealt with issue. Subjunctive means it's an opportunity. It's there. The potential is absolutely there. But it hasn't necessarily occurred yet. The first of these phrases, whoever believes in him shall not perish. In other words, uh, it, it may happen that somebody does perish, but if there's belief in him, see the contingency? How is it that we don't perish? It's by believing in Jesus Christ. Or what, what's obviously the opposite of perishing? Have eternal life. Is eternal life automatic? Is it something that you're immediately going to be able to say that you have? Well, no, you have to believe. You have to be persuaded. And when you believe and are persuaded, then not only are you not going to perish, but you will have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to do what? To judge the world. In other words, that again is subjunctive. In other words, he sent his Son to do what? To save. It didn't have to happen that way. But if somebody refuses and somebody doesn't believe, they're not persuaded, then what happens? They're under judgment. He didn't send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. See, might be saved. Well, how are we saved? By believing. <laughs> By believing. John 12, verses 46 and 47 says, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not Remain in darkness, again, in the subjunctive. In other words, you have the opportunity of being rescued out of darkness, and you're going to remain in it unless you believe. And when you believe, you don't have to remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge, again, subjunctive. This wasn't his intention, to judge the world. But what is his intention? To save the world. Does that mean it's automatically going to be saved? No. What's it contingent upon? Believing. Believing. See, when we talk about why the Lord Jesus Christ came, what we're talking about is he came to rescue. He came to save. How can we walk in the midst of that salvation? How is it that we don't need to remain in darkness? Or how is it that we don't need to remain under wrath or under judgment? It is by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we choose not to do that, folks, then we do remain in darkness. Then we do remain in wrath or judgment. Jesus came to rescue the lost. And by believing in him... His promise, his promise, is that he will save. 
Wow, what a beautiful truth, folks. How are we sharing that with people? How are we letting people know? You know, the kids said, go, tell it on the mountain. Tell it everywhere. I love listening to them. The last couple of nights, man, they got into that shouting moment. And I'm thinking, you know what? Here's little children leading us. Here's little children telling us exactly what it is that we're supposed to be all about. And that is that we are supposed to be so excited about our Lord and what he's done for us that we can't help as he leads and as he guides and as he empowers by his grace. Amen. But we can't help go tell it on the mountain. We can't help but share with people because we see that they're in darkness. We see that they're in bondage. We see that they're miserable. There's something missing in their lives and they're searching for it in all kinds of different ways that really lead into more embondagement, right? Into more bondage. How are we sharing the gospel with people? How are we saying, Lord, here's our lives. Use it in whatever way that you choose. I was at lunch this week with uh, Nate Herbst and Skyler, and we were talking, and Nate did a great job of uh, our waitress came up, and he, he asked her a question. He said, um, what's something that's profound that's happened in your life? And she kind of thought for a minute, and she obviously was thinking about some things, but she got awkward. She was serving away, and she just kind of, I'll be right back. And I, in myself, I thought, well, I'm not sure she's going to respond to that. She came back about a few minutes later. I don't know what it was. And she looked at us, and she said, my son died. <laughs> I was like, oh, man. Right? My son died. I said, how old was he? 19 years old, what happened? Four-wheel accident. And she said, that changed my life. That was, that was a profound moment in my life. See, when you, when you hear stuff like that, folks, I don't know, how does that, that's got to change us, doesn't it? Doesn't that have to, I mean, I don't know what to say about this, but in, in my soul, in my spirit, there's something that just cringes when I hear that. And I want to reach out and say, man, let me tell you about my Lord, because he loves you. Because he went to the cross for you. Because he wants you to be rescued. Folks, there's people like this all around. She had no idea what the gospel was. Never had heard it. How are we walking in such a way that we're willing to say, this is what Christmas is all about. And I love candy canes and I love the lights and I love all that kind of stuff. But this is truly why Jesus came. He came to save. He came to rescue well, the second reason that he came is to restore, to restore. Things are out of order, right? When Nancy Pelosi says that the tax deal is Armageddon, that, that's what? <laughs> Say, dear lady, I got to tell you a funny story about Nancy. I don't know her. But my brother and, and uh, sister-in-law work in D.C., and so they got us into one of those tours where you get to go through the Capitol building and you get to do all that kind of stuff. And so Jonathan, um, oh man, what's the shirt? What's the guys with the beards, the Duck Dynasty dudes? Jonathan had this really goofy shirt on. And when I woke up and we got ready and, and I looked at that shirt, I thought to myself, only in America. <laughs> and do I really want him wearing that to the Capitol building today? <laughs> Right? You know, you kind of, as a dad, you're kind of going, hey, mm, you know, tie, suit, something, you know, respect. Whatever. Anyway, it was just a tour. And so we're standing in line. <laughs> He's got this shirt. 
And here comes Nancy Pelosi past us. I don't know what she was doing, you know. I, I don't know, whatever. You know, I don't know where she was going, what she was doing. But she had her head down. Here she goes. She's not looking at anybody because we're all glaring at her. You know. <laughs> we love you. We love you. But come on, let's get with it. Anyhow, the point is, is she, for some reason, stopped, looked up, and saw Jonathan. I promise, this is the truth, right? And she looked right at his shirt. <laughs> and she looked right at him. And Jonathan's like... And she started laughing, and I thought, praise the Lord, way to go. Made, your, made a mark somehow in all of this. <laughs> the tax bill's not Armageddon, folks, please. Things are upside down. People look at things in a certain way, and somehow it just, you kind of got to say, what's going on? Sometimes we, I don't know about you, but I think we're in an ulterior universe. And you go, well, how did you come to that conclusion? Well, he came to restore. In Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 22, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. You catch that? Is the future, is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. The anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. See, he's come to rescue, but he's also come to restore even creation groans because of sin and the enslavement that has taken place throughout nature. Waiting for the revelation of the children of God. So our relationship to our creator is essential. He created us to enjoy him, to know him, to walk with him, that he would be glorified in and through us, that, that when people look at us, they see him. All of that's been placed upside down. And even creation groans, longing for the sons of God, for believers to be revealed. God's going to bring this full circle. He's going to restore this. Everything that he created in the garden was what? Was good. Was good. And sin came in. He allowed it. He didn't cause it, folks. He allowed it. It came in. But even in that moment, his redemptive purpose is very clear. God's going to bring it full circle. When we, when we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate Christ at the cross, understand that it's not only that we can be rescued, but it's also that he's going to restore this earth. He's going to restore his creation. And it's going to be accomplished. And the third thing, and I think this is important because the truth of the matter is, is in the midst of Christmas time, sometimes we talk about ruling and reigning and we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ as the wonderful counselor, as the mighty God, which he is, clearly. But I, I wonder how we recognize that he is ruling and reigning in our hearts when we yield to him. Because he's come to reign, to reign, to rule. Isaiah 9 
6 through 7. He says, for a child will be born to us. Right? This is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his birth. This is entrance into time and humanity. Out of John chapter 1, we know he's the preexistent logos. He's God. He's always been God. But he set aside not his deity. He set aside his glory, the true identity of who he is. And he became a child. He became a man. Perfect, sinless, spotless. But he entered into, the eternal God entered into time. What an amazing thing. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. He's not only come to restore, he's not only come to, in effect, renew, to restore, to rescue, to renew, but he's also come to do what? To reign, to reign, because this is rightfully his. We are rightfully his. He created us, and he's going to deal with sin, and he's going to deal with rebellion. He's going to deal with a lack of faith, and he's going to reign. He's going to rule because he is the rightful ruler of all. Do you realize that when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that Christ comes to reign within our lives, to rule? And sometimes we get fearful of those kinds of words because we've experienced tyranny in some level. We've seen it. Maybe we've experienced it. And so we have a real hard time with authority. We talk about ruling and reigning. The Lord Jesus Christ comes to live within our lives. In effect, what we're saying is you're the Lord. You're the ruler. You have the right in my life to do whatever it is that you choose. And you know the beauty of this is the Lord never uh, goes against his character. Does he? He never goes against his character. He's good all the time. He always has our best in mind. So when we yield to him, even when we don't understand, even though we don't know what the results may be, when we yield to him and we say yes to him, then it's good because God is good. And he always has our best in mind. And we know that because he went to the cross. He gave his life so that we could believe in him and experience his life. Folks, let me ask you, how are you walking with the Lord in the midst of our day, understanding that he is the ruler, he is the Lord, and that from our hearts we're simply saying, yes, Lord. Whatever you choose to do, whyever you choose to do, it doesn't matter. Here's my life, Lord. Use it in whatever way that you want. Do we understand that Christmas is a picture of God reaching out to us, so that we can be restored and one day he's, he's going to take care. He, we can be rescued and one day he's going to restore it all. And there is coming a day where it's going to rain. But the question is, is he ruling and reigning in our hearts today? Today. Because that's what Christmas really, in so many ways, is all about. Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. 